91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. An 18-year-old white man in heavy body armor murdered 10 people and wounded three others with an AR-15 assault rifle at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. The shooter traveled more than 200 miles to get to a predominantly black neighborhood and live-streamed his attack. Eleven of the victims shot were African-American. The shooter was motivated by hate, authorities said, targeting a supermarket in the heart of a predominantly black community. The victims ranged in age from 20 to 86 years old. For the black community, this was another tragic and horrific mass shooting. KBCS reporter Kevin P. Henry interviewed two local African-American mental health counselors who talked about the emotional effects of trauma that many black people and other people of color are feeling in the wake of the murders in Buffalo. Addressing what happened in Buffalo, obviously black people and our trauma are not monolithic. And I'm also early in my work week, so I haven't had an opportunity to meet with a lot of clients about how they're coping, but the few I have worked with so far are really dumb. Just trauma fatigue from having, a lot of us have been engaged with this for many, many years on end. And it feels like maybe we had a little break in the clouds for a bit Mm -hmm. um, where we weren't dealing with mass shootings and police violence on a daily basis. But for the two people I talked to this morning, particularly, they're like, I don't know what to do with this. This is this is predictable. It's a pattern. We've had every opportunity to move the needle on this issue and it doesn't happen. And a lot of what they're expressing was just terror for their children. Like, how do we talk to our kids about this? Kids that don't feel safe almost anywhere, including a grocery store now. Well, and that's the thing. I think it's easy to get, I don't know if you call it complacent or even oblivious until something like that shocks you back into reality. But the idea that, you know, it used to be even when I was growing up, if something bad happened to you, not not racially, but the idea was that, oh, you were in the wrong neighborhood, you're out late at night. Now it's like you go to a movie theater, you go to a yeah. church. I mean, you would think with the, what was it, the Charleston Nine, I think it was nine black people got mowed down by the white supremacists in, in South Carolina. You would think they're having a Bible study you know, when the sky comes in. So there's no place where you can really even go where you feel like, okay, I'm totally protected from this kind of thing. And then I think what happens is, you know, people have things to do, rent to pay and all that. They're not thinking about it, but it's always around us. So I'm wondering how do people of color exist knowing that there's just in the distance, maybe there's that cloud that's moving toward them, or at least in the distance. I hear you. It's really complicated, especially when I think about the work that we have to do to make ourselves okay with this constant anxiety. Many of us are so exhausted. The last thing we want to do is engage more and put more labor into dealing with this. But something I personally feel really strongly about when it comes to anxiety is we have to engage with it. The more we try to ignore it, the more susceptible we are to even more trauma, PTSD, uh, triggers that we ha- we're not aware that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know everybody talks about mindfulness all the time. And I think a lot of people don't really know what that means. So when I work with people, I really try to be very diverse in how I 
talk about mindfulness. It could be anything from a meditation practice. I think that's you know pretty straightforward for a lot of people. Maybe not, maybe not as accessible. Um, but getting back in your body and being present and making sure that we're not reactive or hypervigilant everywhere, that we are tuned into our nervous system and that we know that there's things that we can do to really ground ourselves and live our lives. Um, these events probably won't stop happening anytime soon, but we need to be able to leave our houses and go to the grocery store. I have a lot of empathy with telling people like, yeah, you've been through a lot of trouble. Here's some more work you need to do. But I don't think there's a better way through this than to figure out what we need to be centered and grounded within our own bodies and honing in on our no nervous system. Um, and to share a little bit about what I do, um, one of my favorite things is I practice martial arts. Mm. I practice Kung Fu and it helps me get out of my head and back in my body. And I have to be in my body to do the things that are required of me in that space. Um, and I find it to be very meditative and I do it every week. And I don't ever let, let the opportunity to practice go. Um, and it's something that I literally have to fight for that feels completely integral to the work I do. If I didn't have that as an outlet, I think I'd be really untethered. And, and what are some of the signs that somebody might be, you know, dealing with some extra trauma or extra anxiety? And I say that because sometimes you could have coworkers, you could have relatives, you could have friends. And I think there's still that general idea of we've got to kind of conceal things or say, oh, it's OK. Oh, it's no. Yeah, I'm good kind of thing when you really aren't. So so what are some of those signs that even just a loved one or a coworker could look for mm -hmm. after the shooting? Well, you named a big one, which is complacency. So if you notice if there's a person of color in your life that you imagine should be impacted by this and they're going about business as usual as if they're not impacted, they may be dissociated. They may be completely checked out. Maybe that your brain is no longer a safe place to be. So people find a find an autopilot to exist in until the world is safer. Um, but there is a huge spectrum of how trauma can play out. It can look like anything from... Uh, classic symptoms of depression, like uh, lack of energy, exhaustion, fatigue, irritability, uh, crankiness, low motivation, hopelessness, even thoughts of self-harm or suicide. Um, but a lot of other people, they do put on that brave face because they feel like they need to do that for not just themselves, but other people. So it can be really hard to tell when somebody's really going through it just because of the various ways people can present when they're in a tra traumatized place. Do you have any advice for, and it's not always white people, but for the most part, who might have coworkers of color, for instance? I mean, I've heard in the workplace, sometimes people of color complain, hey, George Floyd got killed. Nobody said a word to me. I'm the only black person in the office. And it's almost as if they're afraid to say something because they'll say the wrong thing, but by not saying something, <laughs> they come off like they don't care. So do you have any advice for people on how to be supportive? That's a good question. And again, it's not monolithic, but the first thing I think about is the nature of the relationship that you have with this black peer or coworker. Are you actually friends? Do you routinely go beyond how are you when you guys interact? Or are you just a white person who's aware of your aware of your whiteness in proximity to a black person and you have a need to address it because you yourself are uncomfortable? So being really clear about the why behind your engagement, 
Is it so that you feel like you're doing the best work, but you're not actually mindful of what that person's needs are? And if you don't have a relationship with this person at all, um, I think it can be really problematic to only approach them when there's like racialized trauma going on. So I always think that white people really need to have their own communities to do the deep processing. If you do happen to have a close personal relationship with a black person during these times, by all means, check in, ask if they need anything, let them know that they're seen and heard. Um, and also don't try to be a white knight. Don't try to assume that you know what this person needs. Sometimes just being acknowledged and seen when you're in a low place is enough. But I do think that a lot of white people really need to find places to do this work with each other and have these conversations among each other and with their children. Question that I always like to ask of anyone who works with people in crisis, for instance, or having challenges is how do you as a therapist, as a counselor, I guess, find that happy medium where you can be empathetic and supportive, but not take on too much, especially, you know, emotionally, when it's something that you're talking about black people being killed. I mean, it's not like, oh, this my, my client can't pay their rent. So they're stressed out. Let me deal with that. This is like, okay, you know, 11 black people just died over the weekend. So how do you reconcile that within yourself, really, to, to, so that you're able to, to take care of yourself, but also do your job at the same time? I appreciate that question. Um, early on in becoming a counselor, is like right at the beginning of the Trump administration. And I was very aware that I was like one of very few black counselors out there. So I like hit the ground running, hit the streets, volunteered for everything I could think of. And then I hit some significant burnout. It was about mid 2020 that I had to make an informed decision to do less. It felt really urgent that I put myself out there and put my face out there and advocate for all the things that are near and dear to me. But I had to come to terms with the fact that I'm a finite person with finite resources and I need to have time where I'm not engaging with this. So I don't lose the bigger why, like why I do this work. I want to live like a strong, fulfilling, powerful life. And that doesn't, I can't do that if I'm burning my candle from all sides. Being strategic about where I put my energy and practicing saying no when things don't serve me. And again, just being really mindful about what I'm carrying and what that feels like. Not letting myself get so numb that I'm just going through the motions of everything. Um, and then actually challenging myself to find joy. Um, I took up kayaking in the middle of 2020. Um, I needed to be outside in my, in my body and to do something that didn't involve trauma. And it was one of the best things I could have chosen. As a, a Black person, do you ever feel, I guess, some people call it a burden of having to talk about race and to educate people or explain things? I mean, sometimes I hear, you know, Black people say, I'm so tired of having to explain racism and what a microaggression is to somebody. I mean, how do you feel about that? I certainly empathize with people who are not trained professionals who are constantly tapped to do this work, often without compensation, or else there's this expectation that you should want to educate people. So this is where I acknowledge an area of my privilege in that I am half white. I've lived in Seattle my whole life. My partner's white and a lot of my friends are white. I personally don't experience the same type of fatigue that other Black therapists do or other Black people, I should say, from just engaging with people because it's a big part of my life. So where I draw my boundaries is that my friends know not to come to me expecting free education, 
But as a professional, I actually get to be very intentional and strategic about how I do those teachings. That was Ryan Roberson, local therapist and mental health practitioner, interviewed by KBCS's Kevin P. Henry. You're listening to 91.3 KBCS. KBCS's Kevin P. Henry brings us another interview, this time with Michael Swan, who has nearly 20 years of experience as a mental health counselor and practical nurse. He is also the co-chair of the Seattle King County NAACP Health Committee. You're one person, so you have your own feelings and maybe some trauma associated with what happened in Buffalo. But what is your sense of what people could be going through who are people of color when something like that happens in terms of trauma? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of fatalism out there right now in in the black community, you know. And what I mean by that is that we don't know when this stuff is going to going to happen, you know. There's there's people out there that still unfortunately think in ways that are not healthy for society and there's a lot of there's a lot of difficulty with with processing that um i was actually having this conversation uh with my wife uh when i was in arizona uh uh, last week and you know understanding the process of racism understanding what that looks like this there's no logic to it you know there's no rational there's no there's no you know sensibility to racism you know there's there's nothing you can do to makes sense out of why someone would want to do what what this this person did in buffalo you know and and i think that's that's the biggest for me just personally that's the biggest difficulty is how do you how do you make sense of this how do you rationalize uh, such destructive and 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 horrible behavior to take the life of uh, 10 people uh, who are innocently shopping for groceries you know you you, you can't i mean you can't rationalize that and uh, I, I think I think that's what a lot of folks in the BIPOC community are going through right now. Is how do you how do you make sense out of this? Which is my next yeah. question is what should we look for? Like for instance, okay, you know yourself, but if you have a loved one, coworker, what are some of the signs that they might not be dealing with this very well, or that they're they're traumatized, or even trying to hide the trauma? What, what can we look for, and how can we be supportive? Well, I've worked with several people who've suffered from trauma. And, you know, it, it's everyone experiences trauma a little bit differently. But generally speaking, what I see with with folks is, are they doing what they normally want to do? Right. Are they going out to, you know, catch a baseball game, go to the movies? Are they eating well? Are they taking care of their bodies? Are they taking care of their kids? Are they taking care of their responsibilities in life? Are they excessively down on themselves? Are they expressing uh negative emotions more frequently than usual are they saying that they're not okay right are, are we able to sit down and listen to them and are they are they making that uh indication that they're not okay right are they speaking about wanting to harm themselves or other people um are they are they withdrawing there's so many things that we can look at to recognize if someone has uh, symptoms of trauma are they hypervigilant right are they are they expressing more uh, uh, discussion over, you know, I can't sleep because I'm afraid that so-and-so is going to get me, right? I'm afraid that what happened in Buffalo is going to happen to me in my home. And I, I'm, I'm afraid to sleep. I'm afraid to function normally 
as I would on a, on a day-to-day basis. I think that's a big red flag there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a, uh, a program I highly recommend called uh, Mental Health First Aid. And that's for like, it's for laymen, uh, uh, non-clinical folks who want to just be able to make the conversation, right? If you notice someone's off and you want to talk to them about mental health, mental health first aid is a great place to start. I took it uh, last year. It's a great program. Uh, just being able to get the conversation going, you know, like, hey, I noticed that you ha- you're not acting the way you used to act. You're not doing what you used to do. You know, you're not coming out to uh, the movies with us anymore. And you used to come out to the movies t- with us all the time. I noticed a significant change and I'm concerned and I just want to be there to support you. That's a great place to start. You don't have to have letters behind your name to say, I'm concerned and I want to help, you know. Um, so, so that would be a good place to start. And also, you know, if you have friends out there and you're not reaching out to them and you know it might be a good idea, you know, it's, it's okay to just call your friends. You know, if, if, if you have a good relationship with someone and, and you haven't talked to them in a few weeks, give them a call, send them an email, send them a text message, say, Hey, I just wanted to check in and say, hi, to see how, see how things are going and see if you want to get a bite to eat or something. Things like that can save lives. And I, I've seen it. Before. It's a shame that we have to remind ourselves to do these things uh, in the world of multiple social media channels and multi-billion dollar social media companies. It takes five seconds to reach out to your friends and it could save their lives. Well, and then what about like in the workplace? Do you have any suggestions there? Because I think what happens in the mm-hmm. workplace is, is that the, most companies, I think, have some kind of DEI thing going there and, and they've got workshops. And, but yet I've heard from BIPOC people of color in the workplace that it's like people are afraid to say anything. And I think part of it is because, well, I know Mike might, is probably feeling something, but I don't yeah. want to say the wrong thing. So I don't say anything. And I just act like everything's fine. And then, yeah. and then you think I'm a jerk because I'm not even acknowledging it. So any suggestions for that? That's a good question. And, and it's definitely something that I worked on in previous uh, positions. Um, you know, and after George, the George Ford murder, uh, a lot of companies were going and trying to find, you know, rediscover their, their DEI um, principles, understanding what your company's policy is on racism understanding uh, if they have a, uh, uh, and, 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 and for some folks, this can be controversial, right? Because as soon as something happens in the black community, the management, the supervisors, they want to go to their closest BIPOC employee and say, well, what's your, what's your thoughts on this? Like, like I'm an official spokesman, you know, just because my skin color is the same doesn't make me an official spokesman. A better way to go about doing it rather than just asking someone, well, what's your opinion on this? Coming to them at, with an air of support, like, hey, if you need help with anything, I want you to know I'm there for you. Instead of, instead of asking someone to perform for you, mm-hmm. saying, you know what, I'm here to help. If there's anything I need you to do, I want to I get a sensing session together. I just want to talk. Coming at it with an air of help rather than an air, well, what do you think? Trying to quiz people, mm-hmm. I think goes a a farther, a, a much farther way uh, than, than, you know, some, some, some companies, they'll just be like, well, we're going to get a social justice com- committee together. And then that's going to solve all our problems. I, I mean, that that'll help maybe, but let's, let's, let's be honest. Let's see where people are at. You know, can you do a survey? Is that, is that appropriate for the culture of your workspace? Can you clarify your 
company's uh, social justice policy with HR and DEI and whoever works there, right? Whoever is responsible for, for clarifying that policy. Can you be clear as a leadership team to say, we are against discrimination, we are against racism, we are against persecution of the BIPOC community. Can you be clear on that to let people know where you stand? That's, that's where I would start, you know? And I'm not a DEI professional by any means, but I've seen this play out in many organizations and going about this way was a lot more comfortable for a lot of the employees, a lot more comfortable for me than just saying, well, what do you think about what happened? You can come to somebody like me because, you know, I, I, I do this for a living, but for Joe Schmo who works in, you know, accounting, maybe they don't, you know, volunteer at their local BIPOC nonprofit. Maybe this isn't in the front of their mind. Maybe it is, you don't know. But it's it's good to take it. It's good to take it easy at first and not just throw this on them because that can create trauma as well. That's a very good, very good points, because it can add to the trauma you're already feeling. And and I would just yeah. add that it's, to me, it's like grieving. You know, somebody lose a lose a loved one. You know, if I if, if that happens and I know the person, I will say, look, I, I can't imagine what you're feeling, but just know that I'm there as opposed to me trying to take control of the situation. Well, Mike, I want you to talk to me about what you're feeling. You know, the person yeah. might not be ready to talk, but if you if they know that hey, I'm here as soon as you want to talk, you're not you're not adding that extra burden, I think, uh, or that extra anxiety on the person Absolutely. as well. Um the other thing I would just say in terms of the workplace is that like and you kind of alluded to it, is that it's not a check the box. It's not like hey, okay, we we formed this committee, we had this seminar, and now it's all good because it's it's an ongoing, ever-present type of situation mm -hmm. because police brutality or shootings, you know, this has been going on for decades and it's going to continue. Uh, so it's not like, oh, oh, it's not going to happen for another five years. It could happen next week, actually. And even in the Asian community, you know, there's things happening and in indigenous communities, it's happening all over. But I think What's really important is that people be aware of it and don't dismiss it as, oh, that's just another crazy person with a mental health issue. This could be the person yeah. that lives across the street from you. Yeah, it's definitely a societal issue. And, um, you know, what, what I'm saying, too, is, is like also people are grownups, right? You're working in you're working a job, whether it's, you know, building widgets at a factory or working in social services or I.T., Everyone who works in these positions, they all have demonstrated some form of proficiency to accomplish that task, right? Which means that we have to give people a chance to think and to process what this means for them. You know, we can't just sit here and try and in in inject our opinion on everything. Asking people what their thoughts are, asking them what they feel like this means for them, this trauma, it, whether it's building trauma for them to where they can't sleep at night or not. And validating both. Maybe this doesn't affect people. Maybe they're not affected by what happened in Buffalo as much as the next guy. We have to appreciate that. We have to respect where they're at as well, right? Some people just, they don't watch the news because it's all bad. You know, they don't, they don't pay attention to it. So we have to be mindful of that and, and not be persecutory of people who aren't as interested in what's going on in a community that's not in theirs because ultimately once they start to understand what's going on, they'll, they'll come to terms with that and say, you know what, this was a terrible thing that happened. And I feel sorry for these, for, for what happened here. Um, 
and I'll do what I can to promote positive change in my community. That's, that seems to be, for me, that would be the message that I want to kind of promote for myself, right? What happened in Buffalo was terrible. It's absolutely horrible. And I want to do what I can to promote positivity and change and, and growth in my community. Uh, maybe as not, you, maybe it won't be a, uh, uh, to offset the, ter- the terror that happened there, but I'm trying to put out that type of message. And, and I feel like that's, that's the best I can do for myself, right? I don't live in Buffalo. I don't, I don't know who the mayor is. I don't associate, but I, I, I relate to what the people are going there, have going on there, because I know that if I was in the same position, I would probably feel a lot worse about it. Not saying that I don't feel bad about it, but they are there. They're in that community and they're right there suffering from what has happened. We have to, we have to be mindful of that. We have to be respectful of that. So I think that this is a really important topic to discuss. I think that um, obviously this is an example of the fact that we can't let up on uh, addressing racialized trauma. This is a really important topic. Giving people a chance to talk about it, giving, a people, giving people a chance to heal and reflect um, and respecting where people are coming from is, is part of the process uh, working through these situations. And, you know, not to get into the political aspects of the situation and, and the trial and things like that that are going to happen, but just from a social perspective, there's a lot of healing that has to be done in the, in the Buffalo community and, um, and communities abroad. So addressing the, the secondary trauma is going to be really important here over the next few months. That was Michael Swan, a local mental health counselor and practical nurse. He's also the co-chair of the Seattle King County NAACP Health Committee. He was speaking with KBCS's Kevin P. Henry. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.